This is the Serial and Midnight Podcast. Howdy guys, welcome to the Serial at Midnight Podcast. My name is Heath Holland, and in this episode, Matt Patterson returns. This is Matt's second appearance on my channel. In between those two appearances, it's been like three years. When he first showed up at Serial at Midnight for our first interview, first conversation really, less an interview, more a conversation, uh, he was still employed at Warner Brothers, and so there were things that we couldn't talk about. Fun fact, I had to change the name of the episode to avoid... Like, Warner is just strict, man. They're just really strict. I don't know if they still are. Uh, this was years ago. Under t- there was two C- three CEOs ago? Three CEOs ago, I think is when that was. Uh, since then, in, in, in the between times there, I made an appearance on the Archive Guys podcast. So it's Matt Patterson and uh, Daniel Ferranti, a.k.a. D.W. Ferranti. If you listened to the Warner Archive podcast, they were the two of the three co-hosts of that show with George Feltenstein, the maestro of Warner Archive. Uh, he's not there anymore. Matt Patterson's not there anymore. And so this is the first time that we're talking here at Serial at Midnight where he can really just say whatever he wants to say. And... We get so like I'm gonna just like I like to tease in these these intros like this is what you're gonna hear you know also prevents you from tuning away right I want you to listen to it um, Matt's gonna talk about what happened with Warner Brothers which is fascinating to get that on the record like what happened at Warner Brothers what do you think about it um, we're we're also gonna talk about just the business home media business and the entertainment business. In general, what's been going on for the last few years? Because it's been a rough three years. Two and a half to three years. It's been rough. Not just for the people at Warner Archive and the thousands that lost their jobs there. But just for people in the world, in the entertainment business in general, it's been a hard, hard three years. I think that we could all attest to that. Like a lot of us, you know, the last three years have just been really rough. But let's look at that through the lens of entertainment. I'm going to give you a, uh, a brief biographical aside on Matt Patterson. So this this guy comes from comedy. Uh, he was, in, in the 90s, he was part of a comedy team, a comedy troupe that uh, had some really interesting success. And he is the co-author of a book called The Finger, which is about your middle finger, uh, the bird. And so that's that's like, that's who this guy is. You know, he's kind of a satirist, kind of an analytical comedian who's looking at the things that are going on and looking for opportunities to comment on them, which made him kind of perfect for what he was doing at Warner Archive coming out of film school, which we're going to talk about. Uh, and they're getting a job at Warner Archive where he's overseeing the home media distribution of thousands of titles, made the company millions of dollars, and then what happened with the Warner Brothers happened and he's no longer there. So we get to talk about all of that. But more importantly, perhaps, is like what's he's what has he been doing since he's not at Warner Brothers anymore? Well, he made a movie. He didn't direct it. He produced a movie and has been heavily involved with the creation of this film, Lunamancer, which I'm going to reference you to. It is now available on Amazon Prime. There is physical media coming, including a Blu-ray in a very limited edition VHS. I've seen the movie. Uh, I like the movie. It's micro budget and it is weird in the best of ways. We're going to talk all about it in this episode, but this really goes to some interesting places because of Matt's analytical brain and the way that he thinks and the way that he talks about things. This is kind of a tour of the inside of the entertainment industry over the last few years. And uh, I'm just really grateful to him for coming on and talking about this stuff. I always have a great chat with him. Uh, Without further ado, Mr. Matt Patterson. 
I look like I just took a shower because I did just take a shower. So I'm all scrubbed and my hair is wet, but whatever. That Well, I look like there are Santa Ana winds blowing and my hair went flat. And uh, that's because the Santa Ana winds flow. And that means uh, California catches on fire and mm. my hair looks terrible. No, your hair looks good. Well, th- thank you. I feel it doesn't have body right now. And my yeah. allergies start to act up. But... And this is the great thing about California because we have a lot of great names for these things, right? Uh, right now we're in the Santa Ana winds and everybody knows what that means. But then the Pineapple Express is coming in and so next week we're going to get rain. And I'm like, ooh, it's so dramatic. Yeah, but you'll have good hair, right? You'll have the humidity. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, my yeah. I will have Carmen Miranda style <laughs> hair, but the fruit is uh, my head, not the... Not the hat. My my no. head. My hair becomes the hat. It looks good though. You've always got like indie rocker hair. Like you've always got you know that like uh, Gen X rock star hair. Thank you. Yes, um, that's because uh, I'm very employable by corporate America. They see this hair and they go, "Oh, that he's a director of uh, media uh, strategy. He knows what's going on. He knows what's happening. Yeah, he knows what's happening. That's actually the opposite." Because uh, when, especially at the end of my time at Warner Brothers, by the way, I'll just mention that I have not been uh, working uh, or paid by uh, Warner Brothers for uh, almost three years now. It's like two and a half years. I, I like to say you're employed by Michigan J. Frog, but people, I don't know if the young <laughs> people know who that is. is that, yeah, Hello, my baby. People. Hello, my Han. That's the character, the frog character from the Warner Brothers cartoons. But because uh, he, like with Disney, he's like, oh, he's he's paid by the mouse, but Warner <laughs> Brothers has the frog, right? Yeah. Um, but you were still employed by Warner Brothers and you're still at Warner Archive. And there yes. was, let's say there was a lot of stuff that we had to be careful talking about because yes. of the the nature of that employment relationship now here you are on the other side of this it's been it was a crazy like the whole the whole like 2020 um i think there's been two ceos two head honchos at warner brothers since you were here last time mm-hmm. and a lot a whole lot of people lost their jobs yeah a lot of a lot of good people lost their jobs you know the i have um just sort of switching to not just entertainment but uh, entertainment might have been a bellwether, right? Let's talk about like uh, 2020 and beyond. Uh-huh. Very similar thing happened and is happening uh, in technology as well. Uh, because when people went home and all of a sudden they started using their computers a lot for things like Zoom, as we are doing right now, mm-hmm. uh, Zoom stock went up and the people who worked at Zoom suddenly got rich and they hired a whole bunch of people and people started paying subscriptions to Zoom, right? And then that growth ended. And then the way that uh, Wall Street values companies is is on green arrow up. Uh, when that when that stops green arrow going up, they're like, hmm, how can we make that green arrow keep going up? And then they let everybody go. Yeah. Uh, and not everybody. But enough people that uh, the products uh, start to change and there isn't as much support. And the same thing uh, can be said, right, so, as for Zoom or uh, Facebook as a, a company like uh, Warner Brothers in the entertainment industry. And when you, uh, you know, when you when you start 
cutting a lot of employees. Yes, there's always some people who don't like do anything, but eventually, uh, you know, a, a good, by the way, a good example is like um, Twitter, right? Because that's yeah. been in the news. And I believe it's owner, called X now. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Which is, it's not called Warner Brothers anymore either, right? <laughs> uh, it, not as, as difficult of a branding shift. But, uh, the you know, a new owner comes in, changes the brand, lets people go, says it's going to be leaner. And then all of a sudden, uh, in Twitter's case, a year later, the company is suddenly worth half the amount of money. And something similar happened at Warner Brothers. Magic Internet money came into the system and everybody thought, okay, let's grab at it. And so... It took a little while. Warner Brothers went up for sale. It was bought by a guy at AT&T who was number two at the time. And he couldn't buy Verizon because the government said no. And quite literally, he wanted to put Game of Thrones on a phone. Right. And then he bought the company and found out he couldn't really put Game of Thrones on the phone in seven minute segments because the entertainment industry is more complicated than he realized. And then uh, he decided we, the company was going to go all in on streaming. 2020 happened and then they were saddled with debt. So he gave 50% of the company. Uh, AT&T still owns 50% of Warner Brothers and he saddled it with about, I guess, like $40 billion in debt and gave it to the guy who's currently running it, who's running Discovery. And the plan, as announced by uh, The Hollywood Reporter, at least according to employees who are still there, is that um, as soon as they legally can, the company is going to be up for sale again uh, to a buyer, perhaps Comcast. It mm. depends. Uh, because they AT&T wants to get the debt off their books. So yeah. I just I just summarized seven years of Wall Street for you. Now, how does that play into physical media? People just tuned back in. They're like, what? Physical media? Yeah. They, just, they, they, they were like veering <laughs> off the road and they were just like, skeet. Well, now I'm going to I'm backing up a tiny bit when you start to delve into the business and the history of the business and history of distribution. Going back to the beginnings of the entertainment industry, you start finding a counter narrative than what how the history of media is normally taught, which is usually like auteur theory, like this great director made this or yeah. this great writer wrote that right author. Um, but it coincides also with technological and uh, business uh, changes and opportunities that people find so that they they make money right and then money pushes these things forward and so streaming is a big deal however what the recording industry discovered way back was that when the record industry self-emulated on the pyre of napster mm -hmm. and sort of kind of handed over the business to at the time apple and then uh now like spotify etc they could still art and especially artists could still make money on physical media right and 
we and you know as far back as like 2010 or so when you kind of looked at what was going on you were like oh the movie industry is not very far behind the recording industry and so the good news always was that the recording industry found a revenue stream among physical media collectors and i think it was just last year that album sales right um became the one of the largest it, it was a, a it outperformed cds yeah those and, are my vinyl like the record yeah. record yeah, yeah yeah record records and that's because um music fans like that's that's the equivalent of like a, a blu-ray right or a, right. a 4k yeah. uh, and you know you can argue that it sounds better or whatever with records but but the record is a tangible object it brings you you know represents the music that you love it's an album it has artwork you know people just love them and they and they are so I mean, people who collect them, it's not that they're unnecessary, but but music on Spotify is like fractional penny cost, right? Right. And uh, when you buy an album, it's it's much greater. But uh, but you're supporting the artist. You're supporting the label to support artists. You're supporting a, a record store, right? It's part of the community. And the other surprising thing that happened more recently is that cd sales have started to go up because again people are discovering that owning an object has advantages and and i'm not talking about like collector collectors it's like more regular people you know our audience that we're speaking to today is a i will call them hardcore collectors right i mean you mm -hmm. know how hardcore are you but but you're anybody who <laughs> is into, some of them are pretty hardcore man. yeah 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 i mean we're talking you know top percentile right yeah 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 and um those you know the hardcore collectors love of the material is the driving beat and the heart of what has actually kept physical media alive there was a point at warner brothers after i left because they were pushing streaming so hard they were um, and again, I just heard this secondhand. I don't know, but they were not allowed to advertise physical media because they saw it as uh, competition, right? And uh, and because they wanted people at that time to uh, get an HBO Max subscription, mm -hmm. and there's a logic to that, right? But the illogic is that uh, ancillary revenues have always been a huge part of the business and by trying to channel everybody into the new and shiny right like like there are some people physical media collectors are a good example who you know um, you can have a streaming service but that's not a replacement that's not a replacement at all right and uh and then they you know physical media the release numbers would go down but the good news is that eventually what happened is maybe as uh, studios themselves sort of slowed down physical media releases they uh, licensed a lot more material to third parties and so now you get this wonderful kind of explosion of uh, indie labels mm -hmm. delivering 
uh, new masters and full of supplemental material because that's what third parties can bring to the table. What I would love to see Warner Brothers do and that they haven't done yet, really, they put some, they'll, they'll let Criterion touch some stuff. I think they've let Shout Factory or Shout Studios handle some stuff now. But they still have this massive archive, right? And like George Felthenstein is still there. He's still doing, you know, the the work that he can do with whatever team he's got at his disposal. But really, it feels like a trickle when we know that it could be this torrent. And I like it, there could be so much coming out. And we see the same thing with Disney too. Is Disney has like most of entertainment? You got Warner Brothers and you got Disney, who own most. It seems like of the history of, of entertainment of movies. And they're both like, let's hoard it for the streaming services or for whatever. If they would license to third parties, they could monetize that catalog. Yes. However, you know, it's not, um, you know, uh, being there and working for George uh -huh. for, uh, you know, over a decade. Uh, it, it well, people... Hold on. I, that, I just want one of like 15 minutes ago. That's what I yeah. wanted to toot your horn. I wanted to be like, <laughs> you made, you were responsible. Like you were part of the team that brought hundreds and hundreds of Blu-rays and DVDs to the market. The restoration. Thousands. Thousands. You marketed yeah. those. You were co-hosting the podcast. It was pretty much weekly. Well, it was, you know, a regular well, Yeah. Um, we had, uh, we wound up having like five or 600 episodes or 700. I don't know. It was yeah, a lot. It was, it was a lot. You made, I'm going to say probably millions of dollars of revenue for Warner Brothers. And, sure. Yes. And you were, you were like, here you go. Bye-bye. You know, you were kind of handed your walking papers, which for me, I was so upset with Warner Brothers when this happened, right? I was so angry that I was like, these are the people that are the lifeblood of this physical, you know, they are, you know, when I, when I have like a, a Tarzan movie, right. That's on Blu-ray and this nice restaurant, like that's you guys that were bringing that to reality. And to say, uh, you know, that's not as important to us now as day and date theatrical films on max or, or on, on HBO max, right. You know, we you can go see the new wonder woman movie in theaters, but you can also stay home and watch it. I was like, Screw you guys. I'm not going to give you any of my money because, you know, uh, obviously getting uh, let go is tough. But the uh, the wonderful thing about corporate America is um, the the people who are uh, running it. And now I call them the Zoomocracy because, uh, you know, it's like eight people at a Zoom with 30 people watching. Yeah, it. It just uh, if their priority is streaming, then even if like we were extremely profitable, right? Like, like I think it the statistic it was ninety two percent of our releases made money, right? That's like that's like Roger Corman numbers, but like a Roger Corman style business, while the uh, while it all added up well and was extremely profitable it's not sexy right it's 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 like um and people especially in entertainment are attracted to uh you know premieres and big opening yeah. you know hits right it's a hits just like also music right or broadway it's like a hits business and so did you, hold on, did you see that memo that was going out i think it was from warner i want to say it was from zasloff but they were like how do we 
Where, why aren't we leveraging Harry Potter? Why are and it was like like why aren't we leveraging Lord of the Rings? It's like because those stories are told. Like you finish those stories, but I, that's it's the attracts the allure of that red carpet premiere, right? To, to I'm trying to back up what you're saying. Well, no, but it's it's red carpet plus catalog, right? Those are catalog is I mean, well, there are many definitions of catalog. You know, like at around the 20 year mark, right? That's when a car becomes a classic. Yeah. You know, so, so like we're hitting, we've hit the 20 year mark and, and coming up to the 20 year marks, you know, on Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. And so, um, and you know, they now use because magically people, when you said franchise a long time ago, that meant McDonald's, right? Not a movie. But, right. but what that is, is that's just, uh, catalog driven sales and they're like we have this uh, catalog why aren't we monetizing it and it's I can tell you from when I was there is that stuff is monetized every day by uh, home entertainment you know by putting Harry Potter on multitudes now they put it on a multitude of streaming services the the uh, the licensed uh t-shirts and toys yeah. like they they make those those things make so much money cash cow and and lord of the rings as well and you know while amazon is making the new lord of the rings based off of a series of footnotes which by the way i enjoy because it is the amazon lord of the rings the new tv show is the best entertainment product based off of footnotes of all time and i know i know you're I know what you're doing, but like, what other footnotes are there for other entertainment properties? I I don't know, but the uh, screw tape. C.S. Lewis's the screw tape letters, the series based on the footnotes. But oh, let me ask yeah. you a question. So I'm going to go side. Let's. I'm going to go sideways. Sorry. Really yeah. Quick. While you were there, if you can, if you can't answer this, I'll cut it out. But like, while you were there, how many people that you encountered in your day to day job activities cared about movies? Cared about the stuff that they were working on? Well, you know, like there is, especially among the business people, um, they don't want, they didn't want people who were fans, right? Like, and right. when I say fan, I mean like fans who would let their emotional attachment to products interfere with their ability to do the job. You know, right. that's, that that's kind of what you're taught at business school. And right, it does make sense because you you have to you have to sometimes make really tough decisions on, you know, not just who, who are you going to hire, but what are you going to release? What are you going to put resources toward? But the entertainment industry is an opinion industry, right? And no matter how much data you get, which data is really helpful, it's it's very hard to control for that magic fairy dust thing that creates a Harry Potter or a Star Wars, right? If, if that were easy, we would have a ton of Star Warses and a ton of Lord of the Rings, but we don't. And that's because uh, properties, I'm going to, you know, step back. It's like prop, uh, uh, an enduring property like that is rare 
They're just rare. And, but what a studio can do incredibly well is take that property and exploit it. And by exploitation, that means run it through all their channels, you know, like, like the channel that, you know, I worked on and like, you know, uh, collectors editions and things that's that's one audience and that's one set of uh, you know one team and then there's the t-shirt you know and clothing the licensing team there's the publishing arm they have a record label after they sold warner brothers records they they still were like oh we have all this other music what are we going to do with it so they started another record label they have a broadway division that makes money right like so that's that's what a studio can do and that's what netflix still doesn't have they don't have all of those things and and they kind of are like oh we wish we had that but again they're not uh an old company and they didn't purchase a legacy media company you know like amazon did people kind of feared that mgm as it existed would sort of go away once Amazon absorbed it. But when Amazon uh, absorbed like Whole Foods, Whole Foods didn't go away. They just, you know, they just saw that now we have this whole other distribution system. And so MGM lives on because uh, the people at Amazon realized all these little parts were already in place in ways that Amazon uh, they may they didn't even know that they didn't have them, right? And so you're seeing a lot of MGM branded product come through, and you know there weren't as many layoffs as, as people had feared because uh, it was a very smaller team, but they were performing a function that uh, wasn't being done anywhere else. So mm-hmm. I think that's interesting, right? Yeah. And so that is. Um, you know, so physical media and literally, I think it was yesterday, I saw an article and it was Hollywood Reporter where they're like, the DVD is dead. Long live the DVD. And and I, I think I tweeted a screenshot that said, here we go again. Because as, you know, their conglomerates change their priorities and move stuff around. The old adage that physical media fans have always known is like, when you're holding the thing, uh, you have it. You know, it's like, it's that simple. And yeah. more regular people, you know, like, like worn, um, less collectors are starting to realize like, okay, if I have a copy of this thing, uh, I always know where it's going to be or that I have it somewhere, at least if they don't have a beautiful shelf. Uh, and uh, I don't have to like scramble to see what service it's on or like it's free on this, but it's $3 on that. And it can't be edited or modified because we saw that with the French connection, right? Is yep, they took yeah. dialogue out of it. Yeah. And then they quietly after the, after the, the, the backlash they just quietly put it back in yeah that's one of the now now we're going to get into the mystical and weird here is i always enjoy um the fact that there is no perfect movie right like 
you can talk about intent or what the director's intent was or the i mean who the producer's intent who whose intent and when you make a piece of art no, no you know like at least a movie or a tv show there's no perfect version right there's no there really is no definitive version because uh you know the script is on paper the cut is you know either sitting in an edit bay right or um you know in in pieces on film uh and then when it goes into distribution other people along the way are making decisions for various reasons or various you know benefits or not benefits to create something and uh you know like i mean the most famous and obvious example is blade runner right there what what is the definitive version of blade runner which of the 78 cuts is, is there blade a cut runner? called the definitive version i'm trying to remember <laughs> no but i mean that's the point yeah there, it just doesn't it just doesn't exist right and and right. that's that one is obvious because people have talked about it and Warner Brothers released a box set. And, you know, when you go to a 35 millimeter screening, sometimes you don't know which one you're going to see because they've, the prints have been struck at different times. And, mm -hmm. you know, there might be a little piece in this print or not. And that and don't even get me started about aspect ratio or like how something's presented because, you know, sometimes people just shoot it in the camera and then somebody along the line decides, oh, it's going to be a little square or a big square or, or some people know from the very beginning, this is how it's supposed to be. And, uh, and sometimes the people who make those choices initially, like, hmm, that's, that's actually kind of the wrong decision. <laughs> like, it would be nicer if it wasn't like, you know, does this emotional indie movie need to be like, you know, in an like seen through a slit like a band-aid like yeah just a long like, strip like is that does that make it more cinematic i mean okay i guess but i mean you know you know but i think that sometimes people just make those choices yeah without fully considering them oh no now no. okay I'm, I'm gonna go on a tiny tangent i went to the getty museum and i saw a whole floor had a display on the history of frames and they went through like and and it it really got to me because it's something you don't think about and they're like yeah when you put and choose a frame for a painting uh it has more impact than one would imagine and historically over time people would take you know famous paintings or whatnot and change the frame and and that framing in and of itself has a psychological effect. And so that's the same thing with when now when you're getting into physical media, packaging, right? Like, like the packaging uh, affects you sometimes emotionally, right? It gives you an expectation of the film or a, yeah. a memory of the film and, you know, different kinds of packaging. You're like, oh, this one is cooler. And, and, you know, and then there's different presentation and different qualities and like all that is something that people who go, you know, like deep now you're like, whoa, what is real? <laughs> at, the, at the end of the day, it's like, uh, it, 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 the choices that 
filmmakers and studios can make are nearly infinite, right? And yeah. and uh, there is uh, no one correct way, but maybe. But there is, uh, on a personal level, there's sometimes the way that you like best. And over time, that can change because you change through time as a person. And that you know, is a reason to revisit movies because you're going to relate to it differently. I have, I keep butting up against this sometimes and I'm going to butt up against it again, but I've said like, I believe, and I think you're, you're confirming it because you're saying the same thing. Our relationship with movies changes. The movies themselves don't change, but our relationship changes as our perspective changes. I see something now at, in my forties that I, I see it differently than I did at 30 or at 20 because I am not the same person that I was. I keep growing, hopefully, and uh, getting older and having new experiences. That Some people say, like, well, I, this is my top five movies. It's never changed. I'm like, are you watching new movies? Are you putting new information in? Because how could anything stay the same if unless you're staying the same and you're not? But people will say, nope, my opinion is exactly the same. If I don't like something, I never will like it. If I do like something, I'll always like it. I don't understand how that even works, but these people are out there. So um, there are multiple answers to that, but uh, the one that I feel most comfortable with is information overload, right? Mm -hmm. And that a lot of people, and especially, um, again, non-super fans, start to put limits on their consumption that are uh, broad categorically. You know, like, I won't watch a movie from before when I was born mm -hmm. because it has no relevance to me. Right. And you know, that's, uh, that is untrue because everything from before you were born came before everything after. Right. But, yeah. but by imposing that limitation, at least when, you know, we uh, approach media now and it's, you know, our choices are nearly limitless and at least gives you some kind of uh, guardrails so that you're not overwhelmed with the infinite. I mean, it's not infinite now, but it feels like it sometimes it, though. Yeah. There's, and let me well, tell you, like, well I don't know that I don't know if we're wired to put in so much in our heads because, you know, one of the benefits of my position at serial at midnight is like so much stuff. It's like a hundred movies a month. I don't yeah. think we're wired for that. I don't think mm -hmm. the human brain is meant to, to intake that much information. And so I find myself now, forgetting a lot of things where i used to would have really connected with it so there is maybe something to that like don't overload the system overloads information overload i when when i i did the podcast at a certain point i was watching oh god how many movies did we release a month you know something like like movies and tv series yeah. it could be over 30 a month mm -hmm. right and uh that was just for work that's not right for me i mean a hundred well, more power to you but there's just no way it, really. there's no way but it's hard but all, all yeah. i was doing was you know i'd work and then i'd come home from work and i'd watch screeners and you know and we were marketing the movies and talking about the movies so you know and, and um and as a marketer uh it was beneficial to see it uh in a broad sense because when you're when you're selling a movie um the movie is no movie is for everybody, right? Uh, it's just not even right. Star Wars, right? 
like like the things that you think would be almost for everybody is it's just not but even the a movie that maybe you personally don't like there's somebody who's gonna like it and with the magic of the internet and you know worldwide distribution you can connect uh you can at least try to connect those few people with the movie or tv show that you have and uh they will be happy with it right like like and that and that's where I think, you know, talk, when we were talking earlier about fandom, it's like the opposite way to do it. And the way that I like to approach it was who would be a fan of this, right? Get into their mindset. There's nothing wrong with being a fan of, of something. I, I, it, I may not be a fan of it, but I'm not going to tell you that uh, you're wrong for being a fan of it or even the way that you consume the movie is wrong right like like the format like if you want to watch it on vhs great or you know project it against the wall silently fine if you want the subtitles on that's how you like it good for you if i mean in like a movie theater you know people who are texting and stuff that can be distracting to other people okay right. now now your you know audience respect is a is a little different but i'm of course somebody who uh has laughed at a movie where nobody else was laughing because I found it humorous and the other audience members get very angry at me because I'm pulling them out of their experience. Yeah. And that one's kind of tough. Cause it's like, I, I was reacting very genuinely and you're telling me that my reaction is invalid because it invalidates, you know, your feeling. Right. right. Yeah. But that's a movie. That's a theater, you know, like, like go, if that bugs you, Watch it at home, right? If if not everybody enjoys it the same way you do. I mean, yeah. again, you know, I was just, I mean, it was George Hamilton playing the trumpet. He just looked funny. <laughs> the guy actually stood up and like got mad at me for laughing. And then I was with my parents and my dad stood up and I'm like, hey, everybody sit down. It, it is wow. not worth this over George Hamilton. That is a true oh. story. It was so weird. What was the movie? Do you remember? Um, we'll put it out to the to the viewers. Like, what was I, the movie where George Hamilton played the trumpet? I mean, you know, yeah, I I was watching it. This is before uh, I worked at Warner Brothers, and uh, I was taking my parents to the uh, Egyptian theater because I I you know uh, now it's Netflix, uh, but but I loved uh, programming there, and it's a beautiful theater in Hollywood, and uh, it's a lot of fun to go see. I I just love seeing. Uh, old new movies so, you know i'm i'm a, i'm a movie omnivore Woo! well what did what did we learn today well what we learned is that you've picked up a lot of skills over the years and you're now <laughs> putting them to work in a different way because you're producing and you're marketing and you have a movie what that we want... i know right is that why i'm here I don't know. It's almost like that was all just a preamble to the core of this conversation. I want to talk about Lunum Answer and I want to talk about what you've Thank been working you. like this was this was a project that you started coming out of out of your previous time at Warner Brothers at Warner Archive. Um I will say that I got to see an early cut like two right, years ago or something yes. like that. Um and I really enjoyed it. But talk to me about like how did this how did you get involved producing a movie? Well, for uh I don't normally tell the story 
quite this way, but since uh, I've been on your podcast before and people understand uh, my association with Warner Archive, um, we uh, I was working with a filmmaker uh, who, when we would go to Comic-Cons, it started at first, and then uh, he would shoot stuff for us that you know we would post online. And then he shot this, uh, the Warner Archive 10 year anniversary promotional piece uh, that we released. Uh, you know, it's like we wound up going out with a seven minute cut, but he is was a documentary filmmaker. Uh, he worked on Icarus, uh, which won an Academy Award. And um, then he worked on the last blockbuster, which uh, people who follow physical media may know. He was the cinematographer mm -hmm. on that. And while I was still at uh, Warner Archive, you know, after the 10-year um, anniversary video, I'm like, what are you doing next, Noah? And he told me this plan that he was going to go to upstate New York, live there for a few months, write and shoot a feature film. And I was like, oh, good luck, buddy. <laughs> and then... He came Hold back. on, were you looking for things to get involved with at this point? Were you like, I got to get my fingers in these producing pies? No, no, no. He, he like, he was a friend, right? And we'd yeah. work together and hit it off. And, you know, he was, he really understood what we were doing at uh, Warner Archive. And he's really talented, you know, like he could, he put stuff together that not only looked good, but it was fast and, you know, super, super high uh professional work for a fraction of the price <laughs> that's how he got hired you know like like the 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 piece that he did uh to which we couldn't have done uh if we used a regular vendor you know he did it for like a fraction of the cost so i'm like yeah have fun and uh he came back and started putting some stuff together and uh I'm watching it. And so I, I started uh, advising him, you know, a little here and there on his journey on forming this just really strange movie, very dreamlike movie into a solid narrative. And so when uh, the pandemic was uh, happening and, and all of a sudden I had some free time, I, uh, you know, became a... Uh, I became the uh, producer and uh, we did reshoots. We rewrote it. Um, you know, we just really reapproached it and turned this movie that was kind of more of, um, I guess, like an art movie with violence into. Yeah. It's a good description. And, you know, a more cohesive 71 minute bizarre um magical superhero low budget film mm -hmm. that's it's it is it was really challenging to put together uh and required a lot of work and post and you know it's like i mean it wasn't iron man but we went back and you know just kept uh we just kept at it and that because of the pandemic and movie theaters closing and film festivals closing i just took a lot longer uh, than we thought, but we wound up coming up with a festival cut and we ran at festivals for a year. But last year, just as we were coming off our last festival, we had a, 
distributor lined up, but then um, that deal fell through because of uh, my legal advice. I have lawyers. I know how to deal with them from Warner Brothers. And then we picked up another distributor. But at that point, uh, like a year ago, uh, that was when, you know, uh, Netflix first, uh, you know, it's like, oh, we're losing, we're really losing money. And, and all the streaming services stopped buying shows and then the strikes hit. And so uh, we lost our second distributor because the market and the, in the like five or six months uh, since the other deal had fallen through, the market had changed, you know, like there was not much we could do about it. So we got another distributor and uh, just this week, it finally came out on Amazon Prime and uh, it's, you can rent it right now for as little as $2 in SD or $3 in HD. Uh, but we are also coming out with a Blu-ray because since I know how to do that, why wouldn't I do it? And there are wonderful methods of distributing uh, Blu-rays now through the same company that uh, worked on the uh, Warner Archive discs. Uh, they have a great distribution network that really anybody can access and get you placement in uh, major retailers. And we are also releasing, very limited release, a pan and scan 4x3 VHS version for the super collector. But uh, since we did a whole bunch of theatrical you know, presentations around the country with the festivals, I thought it would be fun to make a very, like we, like there are VHS stores here in LA. There is a VHS only store called Whammy and we are arranging to have a screening there, a VHS only screening where we will give away the VHS after the screening. What? And it, and it has special VHS art. I have reversible cover on it. Why? Because I'm crazy. Um, now you know how the collectors think, though. When you get that reversible cover, you're like, ah, I'll get them. <laughs> well, it's also because I'm like, well, I like this design and this design. Oh, it'll get me because I'm like, I'm like, people yeah. can choose. Um, but uh, we even have, you know, depending on how many VHSs we have, we even have a VHS box ready to go. If, uh, you know, like, yeah, like, like an actual, uh, I used to make those at the beginning of my movie uh, career. VHS boxes, which is a lost art. Uh, yeah, it is. And some of my earliest work was converting VHS art to uh, DVD. And I'm like, darn these long skinny boxes. They don't fit into a DVD well. It's funny you say that because, you know, some of these companies do the retro VHS art for their Blu-ray releases. Yeah. And the complaints, like the the customer complaints, the, the fan complaints are like, it's not the same why wouldn't they just use the VHS art on the Blu-ray? I'm like, well, because it's different dimensions, man. Like, it's a narrower product. So you've got, that's why Mill Creek puts like a tape coming out of the side on the art. And some of the other people will put like a border around it or something. But like, it's it's a different size. You have to make some sort of an adjustment. Uh, we would sometimes um, pull VHS art that we found uh, and adapt it for DVD release. I Because I, I, I was good at it. Um, I didn't do all that art. The, um, there were uh, different contractors who would do it. Uh, but 
it was fun to adapt VHS art. We would also use it for like newsletters and and other things. But the style of the VH, the VHS era was very different stylistically, and a lot of uh, retro versions. You know, like yeah, they they put tape around the sides and yeah. uh, it, it, they're they're making and and one of you know and our covers are modern to look retro but it, but like some of them just are you know you got to use a big thick keyframe around the still uh the copy is completely different you have to write a, a 1985-ish copy which would actually plague us at warner brothers because people would be like oh you already have copy and we're like this is the vhs box copy you can't use this now you know, like meanwhile, that, some of the collectors are like, please use that now. That's what I want. Yeah. Like, you know, like and again, uh, we were adaptable to circumstances and identify some of that. But it um, sometimes in a uh, studio production process, it's like slot, like we need uh, text. And so and it has to be X number of characters, you know, so it's like, OK, what do we have in the database? You know, does somebody have to write it? Uh, I worked with uh, Dan at Warner Archive, and uh, that was one of his jobs was to rewrite a lot of the, uh, not all of it, but a lot of the box copy, as he would call it, like a DVHS it. But but sometimes he'd up it, you know, because it's mm. you just don't want it to sound old. I guess that's yeah. the. But yeah. when you're making a VHS, you want it to sound old, so you have to use those. Uh, the the hyperbolic uh, VHS text that it promises you that it's totally worth the $99 <laughs> that you're spending in 1980. Is that what you're going to charge for the VHS? You should charge yes. $99. $99.99. My, uh, my boss, George, would do a funny impression. He worked for a very short amount of time for uh, Menachem Golan, and he said that you know in the very early days of VHS, he he just did this thing where he would say, "George, you have to sell lemon popsicle for ninety nine ninety nine," and wow. I'm like, and uh, lemon popsicle was an American, an Israeli American graffiti knockoff movie, which mm -hmm. was on the earliest form of streaming Netflix, and that's oh, how nice. I first saw it. Yeah, when Netflix first came out streaming. I got like, I think like the, the first or the second Roku model because I was like, I'm already paying for Netflix. And uh, yeah. it was so much fun. Anyway, this is- Let's, oh, let's, let's dig more into Let's dig more into Lunamancer because yes. I got more questions for you about that. Absolutely. Did you have a film? Like, okay, so do you have a film school background? I can't remember. Yes. You do. Okay, so this yes. is something you wanted. Like you were headed towards this anyway at well, some point, right? Sure. I mean, I, I never was like, I want to produce micro budget cinema. Well, what but, did you want to do? Like, what was your coming out of film school? What did you want to do? Um, I wanted to do live comedy. <laughs> and we did. And uh, we started to uh, we actually came out with a, a book uh, which zoomed to the like number 75 on the Amazon Hot 100 at the time. Uh, and that book actually opened doors uh, for us, our our live comedy stuff that we started getting called into, you know, MTV and uh, 
you know, and that, and then the meetings at MTV led, I mean, we went to Comedy Central and then we went Was this the nineties, like 95, what? Uh, 99, 2000, okay. like, like that era. And uh, yeah, which was a really, you know, it was a different time, but yeah. I, I also pitched that uh, the television show had a website component and that people would watch videos of comedy on the internet. And that was like, <laughs> they'll never do it. What are I, you talking about? Like a few years later, when we were still pitching shows, I I came out, I, I went to a meeting with a, a, a Palm, uh, or it was a handspring trio. And I played one of our comedy videos on it. And I said to all these executives, this is the future of sketch comedy. And this is before YouTube came out. And they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, whatever. And then uh, like when I was working at Warner Brothers, I ran into one of those guys at the Starbucks on the lot. And he goes, hey, everybody, this is the guy who showed us the future. <laughs> hey, that's cool. Yeah. Well, it's because like that's, you know, like being in the right place at the right time is very, like it was very obvious to me. I just, but what was not obvious to me was to create YouTube. Well, I think what, what we've learned about you over our conversations and what I know about you to be very true is that you are kind of a big picture. You are looking at the parts. You're looking at every aspect of something and you're breaking it down. You have a very analytical mind, which made you great at Warner Archive. And I think that made you great as a producer as well. And um, I was kind of curious how much of that was like book learning from school and how much of that was just on the job experience from Warner Archive or, for, you know, outside of Warner Archive too, but like everything you've picked up over the, the decades. Yeah. You know, like uh, film school was, uh, I loved it. And, uh, you know, my filmmaking skills were not uh, the best, uh, but I like critical studies. I like genre studies and, uh, you know, I just loved the, history of the media and so mm -hmm. that always lived with me and so when i moved to la you know i just go to lots of screenings like when i was there at like the first or the second like film noir festival and i oh, heard wow. eddie miller talk about film noir and you know i knew film noir from film school but to hear his take on film noir was really interesting because he was pushing catalog films right not just the best and he's like there's something of value here and, you know, I always like midnight movies and cult films. And, you know, I got to meet people like Patton Oswalt. And I went to like see a movie with him at the New Beverly, which was terrible. But it was like so amazing. You know, I was just exposed to all these great different points of view. Uh, I actually went and took a series of writing classes at UCLA Extension School where uh, <laughs> I met a... Uh, Dan, uh, I had already known him from somewhere, but but I wound up bringing him to Warner Archive because we both took the same science fiction writing class. And we both took it, it was like the first writing movie class I had taken, like, I mean, outside of like undergraduate. And uh, we both took it for the same reasons because the instructor was the guy who wrote the uh, Lower Decks episode in Next Generation which at the time was sort of a cult thing, but now Below Decks is like a huge TV show. Like that's that yeah. episode has just lived on and, and uh, to be taught uh, genre by working writers was really eye-opening. And I just took a lot of classes like that. And, you know, Cinefamily opened up in LA and they had a different approach. And so when the Warner Archive opportunity came, 
I was like, okay, I just put all that in a blender, right? And um, it that was material that the larger groups were like, we can't sell these on disc. And for me, again, you know, like holding up the the uh, the Palm Pilot and being like, this is the future of comedy. I'm like, oh, there's an audience for this, right? But I was a temp. So part of my job was like to help, you know, in the kind of back end, like push this thing forward and, and form it into the way we did where, uh, you know, we would take this like manufactured on demand business plan and uh, try to reach the customers who wanted the material and would value the material, right? It wasn't just because it's in the catalog doesn't mean it's worthless. And that that's something that somebody who is in the hits business doesn't really, it goes against their DNA, right? Because they're mm-hmm. like, why would you, why wouldn't you want to work on, you know, working with the best? And I'm like, well, that, that's great, right? But th- but this other stuff also has value. Don't overlook it, right? That's again, that was like something I picked up from Eddie Muller. And he, Eddie has, you know, now he's like, all over everything on, he's on, the czar on noir. of noir yeah is what they call him yeah uh, i couldn't have better you know influences and uh joe dante with trailers from hell and his experience oh, yeah. with roger corman and uh another project that i've been working on for a few years is actually writing a like comedy drama about working in a movie studio in 1979 and all the different business things right like blockbuster movies were coming and these little indie film outlets were getting swallowed up and some of them pivoted to horror some of them collapsed and some of them got bought up by movie studios and uh roger corman personally did a funny thing where he was like i'm gonna make my own star wars and uh he never did that again but he was successful right (laughs) But that's that's where I'm like, okay, that's interesting, right? And that's that sort of turning point, right, from the late '70s to the early '80s, when mm-hmm. home video and uh, cable TV and multiplexes, you know, and but drive-ins were going away, exploitation theaters were going away, the whole business model was changing, and. Uh, the industry was scrambling for something new and uh, the, the industry survived. Right. But, but uh, you know, there were winners and losers and that I think is reflective of the time that we live in now. So that's that project. But Lunamancer is a weird little sci-fi fantasy film that I don't think could exist in anything but micro budget cinema because it um, it's very, compact right it only has a few main characters they don't talk a lot but Mm -hmm. they have uh, rich internal angry and sad lives that uh really do speak like to uh an audience there's there's audiences that really connect to it and so by now getting it on amazon we hope that uh it it also connects also i approach this movie with a lot of uh good spirit and fun even though the movie is a little dark uh but that's because movies are fun right you know people love horror movies i mean they're about murder 
<laughs> you know, like, yay, yeah. murder, right? This is about, yay, I don't know how to express my feelings, so I'm beating a moon wizard with a crowbar. Mm-hmm. You won a couple of awards with it, too, so far. It's a couple yeah. of festival awards. The Philip K. Dick Yeah, Philip film. K. Dick Film Festival. We won, like, Best Film. It was called, like, Best Philip K. Dick Film. The uh, That was uh, the first pandemic film festival we got into, and it was supposed to be at the Museum of the Moving Image, but then... Uh, in 2021, you know, the next group of, uh, you know, like that was after the first set of shots and then uh, they they uh, shut down the theater and then uh, it showed in front of a theater that seated 30 people in New York and we were unable to even get a flight out there. Uh, but the film did really well. Uh, it really, we got some good press and the festival organizer said like he felt the movie was a little bit about a young Philip K. Dick who's just trying, like losing track of what is real and what is not real. Because a lot of the movie could be seen as uh, taking place in the mind of the protagonist. It's, it's got, it's, it's like a micro budget Michel Gondry kind of a story, you know, it's got this. yeah. 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 And I don't want to put like set expectations for people like, well, I'm expecting Gondry then, but a <laughs> micro budget, right? Like it's very yeah. approachable. It's very, um, um, I, I just, I think it's really cool because you, I told you this like two years ago, when we first started talking about this. I was like, you know, I see a lot of micro budget stuff and a lot of it's crap because people have, they want to go make a movie and they don't know how to make a movie and they don't know how to tell a story. And so you see a lot of people just walking around doing nothing. This movie has ideas in it. It's got a lot of interesting imagery and it feels like it's about something, even if it's not necessarily telling you what it is actually about. It, it does not tell you. It, has it does this, not hold like, your hand. hand. Yeah. Yeah. It pushes you away much like the main character does, because it's it's mostly told from his perspective and he's struggling and you, the viewer, struggling uh, there. There are because uh, because budget, there are a lot of shots of people walking around, but we made sure that uh, there was purpose and intent in it, right? Like this is, yes. when you watch thousands of movies, right? Of all different budgets, you you pick up certain things. And this is what I feel like I, I really brought to the table was that everything had to have a, a purpose. And that allows you that uh, kind of flexibility. Like the purpose isn't like, oh, we got a drone today, you know? <laughs> so that'll fill up. 30 seconds but it's it's not because it's like the because it's about living in this post-industrial city that's kind of falling apart and the characters are falling apart and some people are stuck and some people want to flee and almost like they're fleeing into the world of the supernatural because there's nowhere to go you know yeah. and that and we very purposefully limited the film to 71 minutes and that was um, because one of the things that I learned from watching so many, especially B movies and old movies, is you can tell a good story in 71 minutes, like like real solid. You could either take like a 90 minute movie and compact it, or you could take something like this story because there isn't a lot of dialogue to it, but you can make it uh, breathe in a way that a short film it would just be like two guys beating each other, right? Like it'd yeah. be like, oh, that's cool. But it, but this, I think, lets it uh, play emotionally. 
-hmm. It doesn't wear the audience out either. If this movie was longer, it would be more challenging to approach. It, it needs to be approachable. It needs to do what it does. And it, it does it very well. Again, I haven't seen the latest version of this movie. I got to go buy it on, I on, uh, or can you buy it on Amazon or do I need to wait? Yeah. Where, where can I buy this thing? There we go. <laughs> right now you can get it on Amazon prime and it is TVOD transactional video on demand because okay. it's the, what I call the, um, uh, inexpensive short latte price or the cup of coffee price. Uh, and if it uh, does well, uh, Amazon will uh, put it on Prime uh, sooner rather than later, uh, because yeah. the, and because that, that, that will expand the audience. It will also eventually be on Tubi and hopefully some other places. Uh, it was because it is not a traditional sci-fi story. I'm being very frank here. Uh, not a traditional sci-fi or fantasy story. It became hard to sell to larger outlets because it, it doesn't conform to one genre, right? It's not horror. Horror is, uh, if you made a, a good horror movie, people do, Woof, that's, there's a market for that. You're like, this is horror. Or like, you know, if it's got spaceships, it's like, oh, this is a spaceship or time travel, right? If you have an easy pitch, uh, as a, as a, if you are a low budget filmmaker, and you want to make money, I suggest you write directly to a genre because there is an outlet for you. Uh, if you want to be a little arty, it's going to be a little bit of a struggle because it's hard for programmers to slot you. You know, Philip, if you're familiar with the work of Philip K. Dick, uh, it's his stuff is, uh, what he wrote especially is weird. It's weird. And it's about, people like just sort of struggling with reality. And then usually toward the end, they're like, oh, this science fiction, th I, I, it's actually the future. It's not the fifties. And uh, this little puzzle that I've been doing has been saving us from moon rockets. You know, like, like there's always that weird thing at the end where the, and, and this follows that, but that's, you know, that's a, that's a difficult genre, right? Yeah. Uh, to market, uh, to make it was fun but marketing is a whole other beast this is you see me looking off because i really have had to put my marketing brain on uh how how do you connect it so that's why i'm an amazing producer that's right that's right wait so hold on so people want the blu-ray or they want to get one of those vhs tapes do they have to come to a screening or can they get it somewhere else so uh when they are available they will be available at uh i will point to where they are at lunamancer.com okay. uh they I have um, some uh, press screeners that are ready to go. The, the fun part about the Blu-ray is that not only do we have a commentary where you can hear us talk for 71 minutes about the film, uh, but we will have the VHS version. And uh, we haven't quite, we, we have the VHS but, and I'm not kidding, we had to order from Amazon the correct cable to get it from the VHS back into the computer because a lot of these cables just go one way. Uh, that I thought was really funny. I was like, because, so the idea on that is that uh, you will have on the Blu-ray as close to a VHS experience as you can without having a VHS. Yeah. Who, who puts that on a Blu-ray? Uh, Matt Patterson. That's who. So all right. Said, I just wanted to make sure we were hitting all the places that we want yeah, people to go to. Lunamancer.com. 
Amazon Prime. I, I think I have one question for you. This is yes. my last question. This yes. is the and it's a doozy. This is like, all right. Get ready. It's coming. All right, here we go. Where we are right now, is it any easier for a filmmaker or a producer? Is it any easier to create something than it was before, or is it harder to create something now than it's been in the past? This is the magic of modernity is that it has never, never been easier to make something, right? You can make incredible high quality content and you can get it to anybody practically all over the world, almost instantaneously. However, uh, getting people to watch it is, is, just as hard as it's ever been. And then the other challenge is uh, making money on it, right? Uh, because monetization is hard for individual contributors because the money um, it goes to, it's, it always seems to historically in capitalism, to top performers. And so uh, who makes the most money at all this? Actually not, Netflix, YouTube, right? Google makes all the money uh, because they have the most content that they don't have to pay for, right? But they get a piece of every ad, sometimes the whole ad. Uh, but that's um, but that's what comes with the territory, right? You, your voice uh, is available for the world. It's just getting them to it. So. The challenges are different. We are all working for the algorithm. <laughs> I should just end it right there. It's just like, it just goes to a black screen. Because that's true. That's the, that's the scary takeaway, but it's absolutely true. It's sad, but true. And these are the choices uh, that we started making, you know, like 20 years ago, right? Like, yeah. like uh, the algorithm is, is uh, very powerful and... Uh, but it it is not the algorithm has the algorithm's heart uh, in its best interest. You know, like like it, it serves itself very well. Uh, yeah. Learning to have it help you is uh, is is the job, right? A lot of what I'm doing now, us talking right now. I mean, obviously, this is human to human connection, and I hope people check out the film. But even if uh, and this is like weird, right? But even if nobody watches this, right? But it goes up on, the, well, a few people need to watch it. But if it goes up on the internet and it says Lunamancer, right? That feeds into Google and and that kind of increases its visibility. And then that goes over to Amazon. And then Amazon will be more likely to put the movie in front of somebody in like the recommendation, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. like, that's like, uh, I don't, I would rather convince a human to to do it. I don't like. I'm not comfortable. I mean, I'm doing it. I'm. I'm. I can also work to help the machine help people find it. Right. Yeah. But that's a that's the challenge. Right. That's a modern. That's a very modern challenge. That's the gatekeeper. It feels like the algorithm is sir. You said the algorithm is serving serving the algorithm grassroots is still i think the best way if you can figure out a way to make it happen if you can connect with you find your tribe oh yeah yeah 
promote your stuff to your tribe that that grassroots movement really there's no substitution for that the algorithm can't substitute for that nope and the um but the uh and this is my weird like black mirror part right uh that's what i'm doing right now right I'm, i'm talking to people about movies and movie making which is interesting and connecting it to my own journey that's a very personal grassroots way of marketing you know and grassroots marketing does work but then right just like any distributor right like the studio or the algorithm or whatever it it will um because it is success you know if that is successful it will get picked up and amplified right you know yeah. Uh, but but if, by the way, if it doesn't, if you, you know, l- look at like Kickstarter and stuff, you or, um, you know, Discord and Twitch, uh, the algo- even the miniature algorithms within that, you know, people make uh, a living off of th- that kind of work. But um, it becomes a volume business, right? Like like Warner Archive was a volume business. Mm-hmm. It wasn't one movie. It was, you know. Uh, now it's like five, but it, you know it could be up to like thirty, you know, movies a month or twenty movies a month. That's 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 a Roger Corman volume business, uh, which allows you to uh, make a living through scale. That's what I say about YouTube too. Is it's a volume yeah. business? Like if I was volume. just putting up things I want to talk about, wouldn't be doing very good. You got to feed this machine, and yeah. three, four, <laughs> it will kill you. It when it will like you like I I. I think the most I, I did like 17 videos daily in a row, like 17 days in a row, new videos. It just about broke me. And I was like, it's all going up. It's finally going up. You know, I got the green arrows going up, but the cost, the human cost to that was too much. So you got to just find a balance to, to, to feed this machine while also, cause it's a volume business, but also not lose yourself in the process. Lose, your, lose yourself in the process. And very early on with social media, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to sound old when I say young people, but I'd see young people throwing themselves into it. And I'm like this, uh, you, you, ha- you don't lose yourself, you know, because uh, it, who you are is more important and you can always, you know, uh, work, work off of you, you, you still have to live with you at the end of the day and your, your voice your opinions, your point of view is what uh, the algorithm is 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 feeding off of. And mm-hmm. and by the way, and this is uh, why I do not have a million followers, but um, the, uh, the whatever the algorithm is at the time will push you toward what it thinks you should be doing and reward you, training you like a Yep. you know a, a dog or a human i mean we're, we're all trainable but but now you're not the boss you know uh but hey you could be making money right that's so, so it's a it's a trade-off yeah it's we it's uh but hey that's media you know like like this that's where we live but you know i'm you, living you, that i'm living that every day yeah yeah. But you could make a movie on a phone right you couldn't do yeah. that before like like I, I mean like you have a professional camera in your pocket for like a few hundred bucks like that's that's mm-hmm. amazing uh, and it and it will publish you can edit a thing that you can hold in your hand is like the gutenberg printing press times 10 million you know like it's so powerful um but with great power comes great responsibility 
and great competition too because you're you're competing with everybody else with a computer in their pocket everybody right and uh that's you know it's exciting uh so i i yay where do you want people to go follow you want to shout out your social media oh yeah yeah well um at mr matt patterson uh is uh instagram and um twitter which i still call twitter because you know i'm i i'm i'm the person who will call it twitter for 20 years mm-hmm. um and uh you can follow lunamancer at uh lunamancer movie on uh, it doesn't have a huge following on on twitter and it's uh lunamancer 2023 on instagram very good anything else you want to talk about before we uh ride off into the sunset uh, I'm going to save that for next time. I have so many things. Okay. So come many back. things. Yeah, come back so and let's pick things. it up where we left. Yeah. Home. Yeah. If we haven't exhausted people at this point, then uh, they can they can tune back in. There you go. And to, to be continued. So listen, stick around. I'm going to say goodbye to you after we record, but uh, after we finish recording. But it's always a joy to talk to you. Um, thanks for doing this. Thank you. Bye. Oh, there you have it. You uh, you have looked into the mind of Matt Patterson, and we are we are awestruck. I have so much re- like I don't want to. I I really respect Matt Patterson. I think that he is probably a genius. I think that the way that he thinks about things is uncommon. He's looking at big pictures. He understands trends. Uh, and so, if you like what you've heard here, first of all, you got do check out Luna Mancer because one, independent creators, right? Uh, to micro budget, so it's an alternative to that big $300 million thing. And you heard in the interview that it's harder than ever for, it's easier than ever to create, it's harder than ever to get your stuff seen. And that's the problem. So I experienced that here with Serial at Midnight, which is why I'm constantly asking you to rate, review, subscribe, give thumbs ups, do whatever you can to support Serial at Midnight and to support indie creators. Because listen, you know, I'm working on this stuff like pretty much 24 seven. This is all I do. I wake up thinking about cereal at midnight. I go to bed thinking about cereal at midnight. I go to bed with my to-do list in my head for the next day. Uh, So that's support. And and I'm competing with channels that have, you know, 3 million subscribers and YouTube actively wants to promote those channels, right? Because they are making making Google a lot of money. You know, this is a corporate business. It's, it's a shame that every platform that we have that helps to distribute stuff is a corporate platform that is in the best interest of that corporation to maximize revenue off of that. And that's how certain smaller creators get squashed. But uh, again, remember to do all of the things with the thumbs and the ups, you know, uh, with the subscribing, with the sharing and the telling of the people of the thing that you heard so that others can discover it too. Really, whatever you can do to support Serial at Midnight. YouTube memberships is a thing now for five bucks. You can unlock exclusive videos and you're helping to promote what Serial at Midnight does because I don't do sponsorships. I don't do uh, ad reads for things. You know, I do not sell mattresses or stamps or cereal. You think that a cereal sponsorship would be in the cards, but... uh, I've said no to those because they want too much information about you. And I think it's kind of creepy. I don't want to sell you out to a corporation looking to target market things to you based on your age and your demographic and your 
race and your gender and all that stuff. That's none of anybody's business. I will not sell that, right? So here we are. It's you and it's me. Whatever you can do to support Serial at Midnight, I appreciate it. Uh, do head over, check out the Archive Guys podcast, Mr. Matt Patterson on social media. Thanks again to Matt Patterson. Thanks to you guys. I appreciate you. Till next time, I will catch you later.